the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. AM 970 The Answer presents Eye on Real Estate. This is your premier source for real estate information from the hot properties in the tri-state to the latest real estate market trends. From mortgage news to answers to all your real estate questions, you'll be in the know with help from the experts. I'm getting closer to Call now, 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. Now, here's your host for Eye on Real Estate, Douglas Elliman's CEO, Dottie Herman. Good morning, and we're back. This is Jerry Feeney sitting in for Dottie, who is on her way to London to celebrate Elizabeth's birthday. I don't think she's really going there to celebrate her birthday, but it is Queen Elizabeth II's birthday today. So happy birthday, Liz, and we uh, wish you many more. Um, poor Charles, right? I mean, he just can't seem to get that throne. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we're talking uh, real estate and everything having to do with real estate. I'm here with Ace Watana Suparp and Stephen Gaines. Uh, and... Um, I've been very excited about this for a while, and apart from my just horrific pronunciation of your last name, Maria Elise, I'll let you tell everyone how to say the last name DeVue. Am I close, Marie That's perfect. Your French teachers would also be very proud. That's wonderful. I know. My, my French teachers are not at all <laughs> proud of me. Trust me. Um, Maria Elise is, is, is not only just a wonderful person and friend of mine, but used to be the curator of uh, the African Burial Ground National Monument in downtown Manhattan, and I've been interested in this for a long time, and it's a fascinating story, particularly when you start talking about uh, slavery in New York City, which most people don't really consider. Can you just tell us a little bit about the African burial ground and, and your experience down there? Sure, sure. I mean, again, I must give all kudos to Dottie for Queen Elizabeth's birthday. I mean, that's, that's something I, you know, and we're going to send it. Maybe we should do a write-in for you, Jerry, for... Um, you know, getting that that crown at some point. I yeah, no, I I, 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 I am uh, not gonna. I'm not gonna accept it. <laughs> so, <laughs> how how did we how did we discover this site? By the way, what happened? Well, uh, so basically, uh, about 1991, uh, the whenever the government is going to uh, put up a building, and the government had purchased uh, area in downtown Manhattan to uh, put up a federal office tower. Uh, you've got to do what's known as a cultural resource survey if you use federal funds. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, cultural resource survey, they, they were planning on building a 34-story office tower and a four-story pavilion. And uh, the cultural resource survey did, in fact, uh, show that um, old maps from the 18th century and before Show that there was it's known as a Negro burial ground uh, at um, in that same location. Right. So, so now there there already was a building here that previously had been built, but before they knocked it down and built a federal government building, they still do this cultural resource survey. Is that it? 
Well, yes. Yeah, so what? Uh, so there. Yes, there had been lots of building, but um, you do still have to do a cultural resource survey uh, to find out if there's anything of cultural mm-hmm. value. So, okay. the, although it was indicated, sometimes people think that it was a uh, it was a mistake that they found it. It was an accident, but actually, it wasn't. It, it, they knew that there were uh, historians knew that there was uh, um, what what later been now being called an African burial ground. They knew that that was there. Uh, they just didn't know if they would find any, if they find anything, you know, if they right. would find any intact burials. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't have a plan for if they would find, you know, one thing or two. So to find over 400 um, intact burials of men, women, and children who lived in and um, perished in colonial New York was mm-hmm. that was that was a big surprise. Nobody expected that. I mean, I remember when this happened. It, it was in the early '90s, and and you know the when we were chatting last week about this, I, you know, I I recounted sort of the myth that I had heard, which was that they stumbled upon it, you know, and I sort of envisioned this guy in a backhoe and he's like excavating, and all of a sudden he hits the skeleton, and everybody says stop. Uh, because that's sort of the mythology around what happened here, but in fact, uh, the cultural survey dis- discovered that they that there was this burial ground here. But what was unexpected was sort of uh, you know the abundance of intact skeletal remains in this burial ground. Um, did they know that when they when they stumbled upon this that that there were going to be this many uh, people that they were going to be able to recover, or was it just a total shock to everybody? Well, so uh, again, it depends on on um, who you talk to at what point. Because if you're analyzing it, like um, you know, Manhattan, uh, as many folks know, is uh, the Lenape word, uh, land of many hills. Mm-hmm. So Manhattan had a number of hills and 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 valleys. So when those hills, as we're continuing to build a city, uh, those hills um, were. Uh, used as landfill to fill the ravine, to fill um, the, those areas downtown, which actually, what now we now know that many of these African men, women, and children actually had a hand in. But mm-hmm. the, the burial ground was covered with, with about 25 um, feet of landfill. So once um, archaeologists uh, and other scholars, they started to consider that documentation, started thinking about that, then it did make sense because that landfill actually served as preservation. Uh, so you see what I'm saying? That yeah. um, you've got 30 feet. We had to go about 30 feet with a backhoe to right. get down to where these actual ancestral burials um, were, ancestral remains. So, and, and it was actually that landfill that, that did the good job of preserving them. Interesting. Right? Now, of course, this all, you know, I always think of New- of Manhattan as, you know, tunnels underneath everywhere in Manhattan, right? You know, you think of right. trains and everything underneath. So luckily, I guess, no subway had been built underneath here. Otherwise, that would have, you know, uh, disrupted the burial ground, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, so, but... Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. But in effect, um, you know, just to situate what we're talking about. So Chamber Street, the original burial ground was about... Um, Acres, so about five city blocks. So you're saying like Chamber Street, where um, uh, Broadway, Dwayne Reed, 
right. all of that area, which, um, again, there was building above, but more, more than 25 feet above, but, um, but below, the, that landfill had really preserved them. Yeah. So, and Hard that was ma- also outside of city limits at the time. Right. It's hard to imagine that, you know, but in the 1750s, that was the outskirts. That was sort of the part of the city that uh, hadn't been, you know, developed or used. Tell us about what was specifically found there. And I guess what I'm interested in is were the first of all, the ages of the individuals that they found, were they were they mature adults or what, what, what kind of age ranges were found there? So, um Unfortunately, uh, the ages of these folks who were enslaved, the folks who were found in the burial ground, 40%, a little under half, were actually children. Mm-hmm. So we know that uh, at, at this point, um, there were 419 uh, ancestral remains that were uh, recovered from that site, and there are thousands that we know are still in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we know that these children, unfortunately, as the men and, and women so uh, of the adult population, um, there were a, a few more men than women, and um, most people did not make it to their 40s. Yeah. So uh, the, um, the skeletal remains actually did show um, that many of our ancestors uh, were actually uh, worked worked actually to death. So some of yeah. the remains really showed that um, one of the things we were talking about um, is that there were historians. That, well, let me just back up. You know, as a New Yorker, I've always been very bullish that you know one of the things I was proud of is that we, um, as New Yorkers, we were not involved with the institution of enslavement, right? Slavery. Yeah, you know, certainly and the, that was, the common perception is that, uh, you know, New York City ended, New York, the Northern States ended slavery on their own much before the South did. But that really was a was an economic reality rather than a moral decision. But but back then, slavery was intact in New York City, right? Yes, yes. So you had historians who, who, who would talk about slavery as kind of a benign slavery, right? Like a sort of feather bed slavery. But um, as if there was such a thing, exactly as if there was such a thing. Uh, however, um, what we do know from the studies that uh, that scholars did is that um, I'll just say what I'm saying about being worked to death that you know, some of these uh, ancestors they lifted things that were so heavy and um, that they got scarring um, that uh, something known as an enthesopathic lesion where you're lifting something, imagine your clavicle, you're lifting something, and it's so heavy that it pulls away a part of the muscle mm. along with the bone. And the pain. this was actually very, very painful, and these kinds of things were what was also uncovered in, uh, in the burial ground. Um, but you ask, you know, how were things found? It, you know, it is the story, we can get back to some of the things that, these folks did, but part of the story, too, which is also fascinating, is even under these terrible circumstances that people were living under, you know, this wasn't a mass grave. Um, 
Every right. So this is not week. just this is not something that's just a trench that we're we're throwing bodies in. These were ceremonial burials. Were they found in coffins or were they shrouded or how were they found generally? Yes. Yes. Every single burial was um, uh, every child was uh, wrapped in a shroud in in a coffin. So mm -hmm. um, and when you think about what that must have been like, uh, some of the children or some of the burials also had um, uh, pennies over the eyes. Um, things that, mm. you know, had significant shiny objects, um, spiritual uh, links to links to the past, links to divination, to God, to the water. And mm -hmm. uh, these folks who had gathered to bury their loved ones, they could have cut money to, you know, they could have taken the silver, they could have, you know, used it for some other reason, but but the ritual of of the dead, of the ritual of having respect, uh, that actually is something that was maintained, which is incredible, you know. It, is, it, it is incredible, yeah. And, and also to think about the fact that after the burial of, and then, you know, the infant mortality rate back then among uh, Africans was close to 50%. So, you know, we're not surprised that that many children were found. But when you think about the fact that after burying their child, most of these people returned to work in slavery that same day instead of having a mourning period. So that I think is also significant. But, you know, the I think it's it's also fascinating what the archaeologists are able to determine about their life, right? So, you know, that they can look at the ancestral remains and determine that many of these people had, you know, had suffered and lifted things so heavy that they'd torn away the muscle and then had to live like that, right? They must have lived in tremendous pain after suffering something like that, right? Indeed, indeed. Tremendous yeah. pain. What can, what can somebody expect to see if they visit the African Burial Ground National Monument in downtown New York? I mean, I, I am embarrassed as I've never been there. I'm going to go there, and, and I have to go there with you. I'm going to get a guided tour. But if you go down there, what can you expect to see? What types of exhibits are available? It's actually quite beautiful uh, what, what was done. And what the remarkable thing about this, the African Burial Ground story is really... Uh, the story of our ancestors and the story of New Yorkers. That uh, New Yorkers, you know, one of the things that you and I have chatted about, uh, Jerry, is, you know, that one of the top three things we love to talk about is real estate. Mm -hmm. so, um, and, but there is also something more important to us, too, or something that also gives value more than price per square foot, and that is culture and respect for for even the history, the past that we were unaware of. So um, it's a victorious story of New Yorkers. So I just, I'm just backtracking a little bit um, on, on how the burial ground actually was saved. It actually took New Yorkers going out into the street, halting the building being done um, and saying, we'd like to know what can we learn from these ancestral remains, uh, and it was uh, a diverse group of the, the African-American descendant community, those right. folks who were claiming the people who were, you know, forgotten uh, yeah. in the burial ground, and, and a host of people who said, you know what, 
we're not just going to have a monument. We're not just going to have a little plaque. We need to actually preserve it. So I just want to say that that 34-story office building, it did go up. It is 290 Broadway, uh, only because it, there had already been damage, um, things that have occurred in that spot itself. So the 34-story office building did go up, but the four-story pavilion next to it didn't. And, and that piece was so hard won, but an, an incredible across-the-aisle um, use of, of spirit. So you've got, um, there's an Illinois Democrat named uh, Gus Savage who heard the calls of the people, you know, New Yorkers who came out and said, we want to know who are these people? How did so, they so live? Where did they when come they, All right. So when they originally found this this survey and, and realized what was there, the plan was to what? Just disinter these remains and move them elsewhere and continue construction? Or what was the yes. original plan? Okay. That's correct. Yeah. And why would that have been, I mean, you know, disturbing the remains of of people who have been there for hundreds of years, I think most of us would agree is distasteful at best. But what's wrong with building over them? I just want to know. I mean, what, what what's the theory of why, why can't you just build over them? We've been building over them all over the city. I mean, I imagine there's buildings that are on top of ancient burial grounds all over the city, no? Um. Yes, there are there are places where our ancestors are interred around the city um, that most New Yorkers or many of us may not be aware of. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I think that most New Yorkers understood that this is something these folks were, unfortunately, they were disrespected, disregarded, harmed in, in life. But and still, we still want to know what, who were they? How did we, how do we preserve part of their memory? Because mm-hmm. they were one of the builders of New York. And New Yorkers came together and recognized, you know, if that was my great-great-grandfather, my great-great-grandmother, yeah. how would I want to remember that? So, so people thought that it would be disrespectful, especially since this is the largest, um, oldest African burial ground um, in the history of the United States. In all uh, of North America, yeah. yeah. All of North America is probably the most significant site, many have argued, in the United States. So the historical value was tremendous. And and people understood it on, on not just an intellectual level, but on, on a very deep, uh, visceral level in wanting yeah. to know who, who I like people the way are. you describe it, right? I mean, this is a group of people that were disrespected during life, fears the opportunity to show them at least a little bit of respect um, post-mortem. And I, I think the right decision, do you think it was the right balance that we achieved down there in, in building this monument versus allowing the structure to go up? I mean, we balanced the needs of, uh, you know, the continuing building of the city with the, the respect for our historical background. Well, yes, um, because what the public had argued successfully is um, that, as we just said, that we do need to respect and, and honor and remember these people. But we and we knew so little about their lives that we need to know who are they, what did they do, how did they contribute to the building of New York, and we now know tremendously how much they yeah. contributed. Um, and uh, and that there should be a place to also pay respect. 
and learn and, about and learn about this history too. And, it's, and learn it's, about it's exactly. really and in a, yeah, it's really a fascinating story. Sorry to cut you off, but we have a break coming up. And thank you for calling in, Marie Lise. I know I've been uh, bothering you about this for a long time. It really is a wonderful story of New York and our history, and uh, it's got to be on everybody's list of to-do things to go visit the African Burial Ground National Monument. That was Marie Lise DeVoe, and thank you for calling in and teaching us a little bit about our city's history. I think it's a fascinating story. We'll be right back after the break. This is Ion Real Estate, and it's Jerry Feeney, and we'll have a couple messages. It's I on Real Estate. Got a question? Call 866-970-9622. Here's Douglas Elements CEO, Dottie Herman. And we're back. This is Jerry Feeney sitting in for Dottie, who is on a flight overseas. She'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks, but I'm here with Stephen Gaines and Ace Fotana Super. That was interesting, guys, wasn't it? The African Fascinating, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. What, what address is it at exactly? Uh, it's downtown She's... at around 290 Broadway is the building, and then the uh, the National Monument is next to it. But it's it's, um, it's definitely something that you know I want to go and visit. You don't really think of New York City as a as a place that slaves lived, but they did in the 1800s, and um, it's a good thing that the city preserved this. I think it's an important landmark, right? Mm-hmm. I remember when it happened. I mean, you remember, right, Stephen? It was a big controversy in 90, 1991, and I thought you there. meant when the slaves died. I, I no, mean, I didn't. No, you, you <laughs> well, I don't know, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't around back then. I'm not that old, Stephen. <laughs> no, I, I thought you meant me. <laughs> it's on. It is on, everyone. Um, so, uh, by the way, uh, we know that uh, Lena Horn's apartment is on the market, and you can pick that up for a mere uh, 825 For those of you like Ace who don't know who Lena Horn is, do you know who Lena Horn is, Ace? I don't. I was no, looking her up. of course not. <laughs> Stephen will sing some it's, of her it's greatest. It's fascinating, though, Jerry, that you brought that up now because she bought this co-op when African Americans were not allowed into co-ops. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, really that's kind of a, a sad statement, you know, and, and right after we talk about the African burial ground that even today mm-hmm. we still see these situations, but apparently uh, she couldn't buy a co-op because of her ethnicity, and the, so she ended up buying some apartments in this building. And this is not really where she lived, right? This was her office? This one, no, I mean? she had five units, and one of them was her office, and then there was a, one that she used as a, her own apartment, one that she used as a guest apartment. But at the time, and you know Harry Belafonte, uh, he bought his own apartment building on 300 West End Avenue because he wasn't allowed into other apartment buildings. Mm. So this is uh, some uh, historic thing. But the one that's for sale for 825 was Lena Horne's uh, office. Yeah. I like her. Her daughter said, uh, quoted saying, her bedroom was always red. She loved red. Uh, she slept late. She would go to bed around 3 a.m. when she was working and wake up at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and generally have a big steak, <laughs> uh, which is sort of Ace's uh, itinerary, right? That's what time you wake up in the afternoon and then have steak? Pure protein? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> 3, <laughs> 3 a.m. and get up at 3 p.m.? <laughs> I mean, how do you get anything done? Uh, yeah, she was a, she was a, a famous uh, torch song singer, right? Is that how would you describe her, Steve? She, yeah, she, exactly. She was a jazz singer. Yeah, she yeah, was a spectacular and very famous in her time. Spectacular voice, Ace. Google her. You know, Jerry, going, Jerry, going back to the burial site. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so fascinating how you know you live in NYC. I mean, I lived here all my life, and 
I don't know about these things, right? So it's just, I mean, yeah, it's it's fascinating how we find out new new places and and new landmarks. So no, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted Marilis to come on because, you know, I'm I'm a student of history and in particular, you know, the the experience of of slavery and and civil war in this country. I'd never been to this, and I was embarrassed. And I said, people have got to know about it, and we got to talk about it. Yeah. You know, we don't go. We don't take enough advantage of these cultural institutions that are in the city to learn about our history. But it really is part and parcel to it. And um, um, you know, it's it's shocking that that this was all going on. I mean, I haven't even been to the nine eleven memorial. It's terrible. I got to get I, to all this. I stuff. live in downtown Manhattan, so I definitely need to go check it out. So. You have no excuse. You should go this afternoon on the no radio excuse. show. I know. Right, and then and then go listen to some Lena Horn tunes. Who you've that's never it, heard of? <laughs> Exciting Saturday. So. <laughs> um, okay, so there's a new project going up uh, in uh, the Bronx, the South Bronx, that I want to talk about. It's going to be called Harlem River Yards, and it's going to uh, house a stadium of 26,000 seats for soccer. I thought soccer. Uh, I'm not a sports fan. Ace is. I thought soccer. Nobody watched in America anymore. Is that changing now? That is not true, Jerry. Soccer no. is becoming a phenomenon here. I huge, remember huge. when they tried to launch it back in the 80s with, uh, what was it, the New York Cosmos, was that it? With Pele? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it didn't it didn't fly then, but people people now will sit through an exciting two-hour game where the ending score is one to nothing. They love that. Yeah, Major League Soccer is huge here in, in the States. Yeah. And this is the this is the first dedicated soccer stadium that's going to be built. Twenty six thousand seats is a big stadium. There's also going to that's be a big stadium, an apartment building. It, these mega projects are going on all over New York City. It's remarkable. Mm-hmm. This is a seven hundred million dollar project that uh, that they're building these apartments in the soccer stadium. Yeah, it's going to have a retail space, a park. Um, fascinating. Soccer state uh, soccer uh, fields are bigger than football fields, right, Ace? Yes, they are. They are okay. a lot bigger. Stephen, do you like watching soccer? Are you a fan? No, oh, I mean, I, I you know, I didn't grow up watching soccer. I grew up watching football, and basketball is really my mm-hmm. game. But you know, to watch, I think it's the best spectator game, the most exciting for me, anyway. But I I never uh, watched soccer, and I don't know much about it. Yeah, I once tried to watch it. And I fell asleep after about five minutes, but that's just me. Um, <clears throat> Governor's <laughs> Island is back in the news. When are they ever going to finish and do something with Governor's Island? I'm really getting tired of hearing about it. Uh, they've been talking about this for so many years. <coughs> Excuse and me, now, but, Jerry, yeah. go ahead. And now, now what? Stephen, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, now they are thinking about uh, putting a gondola that would run from Lower Manhattan to Governor's Island, and that's you know how you would get back and forth to Governor's Island to re-examine the aerial transport system. Who on earth is ever going to get on this gondola? I mean, give me a break. <laughs> Are you kidding me? A gondola going over the East River so that you can plunge into the river to your death? I don't think so. But, you know, how long have they been talking about what they're going to do with Governor's Island? It's this incredible piece of real estate that's off the, the southeast tip of Manhattan that, uh, you know, was the site of the uh, Reagan-Gorbachev summit and has famous, uh, you know, it's a prime piece of real estate. It had a golf course on it. And, you know, as the city uh, wrings its hands and tries to figure out what to do with it, uh, the whole thing has been growing over. I wish they would just 
finally, you know, settle on something and develop it, right? What is there now? I, I don't even know if they've ever built anything there. I don't think they have yet. Uh, they, they're going to uh, – it's four and a half million square feet of commercial development is what's planned. Hmm. And, of course, housing and stuff. But to me what's fascinating is every single piece of property, every little island that was around Manhattan, soon is going to have giant buildings on it. I mean, it's like some science fiction movie to me. Hmm. We're used to see, you know, Manhattan was just these giant spires. It's actually happening now in front of our eyes. It's as wonderful well it and should. scary. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, if the mayor wants to call in, I know it's only 1130. He's usually not up this early. But if he's listening, as he usually <laughs> does, um, he should call and tell us what he's going to do with that. Um, by the way, if you want to pick up a burned out house in Silicon Valley, uh, there's a bidding war over it. They put it on the market for 800000 <laughs> uh, But it, they think it's going to be a bidding war. It's going to get over a million. And the thing is burned out and not even habitable which is a sign of the of the market in, in that area with Silicon Valley bidding up prices. Do you know that year over year uh, in that area we're up 23.9%? That's a little scary, I got to tell you. 23.9% wow, year over year. Wow. I, you know, we've never gotten to that level in Manhattan ever, even in, in the most robust of years. That's unsustainable, wouldn't you say? Ace? They're just yeah, I mean, 23.9%, that's, that's, that, that's yeah. a huge, huge increase. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're so desperate that this house that burned down completely, I saw pictures of it. I mean, it's complete burned out shell. Somebody, they put it on the market for 800000 And people <laughs> just, you know, in Silicon Valley, uh, there's a lot of people there, and uh, it's very hard to find housing at all. San Francisco as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, good luck with that. Um, talk about, you know, I'm always fascinated how some uh, properties are listed and, they sell at some grossly disproportional price to the original listing, and it makes me wonder what was the broker thinking when they originally uh, valued the property. You know, I always tell people when they're uh, interviewing listing agents for selling their house, and one listing agent comes in and they're substantially higher in valuation than the others. Well, ask them why. Tell me how you're going to get that price when everybody else is, you know, a couple hundred thousand lower show me the evidence of the valuation um indeed there's an apartment in the time warner building <clears throat> that um is uh finally sold for about 12 million which is half of what they originally listed for this thing's been on the market for 10 years uh <laughs> at one point it was listed for over 24 million dollars and it finally is traded down an anonymous deal for a foreign buyer of course all cash 12 million dollars but it first was put up for sale in 07, and it's been with 10 different agents, and uh, and they finally settled on this price. That's, it's amazing, isn't it, how, how it, different the, the valuation goes with the ultimate uh, sale price? It's crazy that, you know, first of all, it's been in the market 10 years. You think you have problems selling right. your house? You know, yeah. broker, why isn't my house selling? It's been 10 years. But this guy who first bought it, he had a fight with the first broker because he said that the agent had listed the property at too low a price. Yeah, <laughs> so, guess who ended up being right in that argument? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, and God knows where that original guy is, 10 years. Yeah. Um, you know, Time Warner building had a lot of uh, pizzazz when it first went up, and there was a lot of activity around it. He probably thought he had something particularly special, and sure it is a magnificent property, 63 floors. I mean, that's quite a towering uh, view over New York City in the park. Um, this is Ion Real Estate. We're going to take a little commercial break. We'll be right back. 
And if you have any questions, give us a call at 866-970-9622, and we'll be right back. It's I on Real Estate. Got a question? Call 866-970-9622. Here's Douglas Elements CEO, Dottie Herman. It's actually Jerry Feeney sitting in for Dottie, who's traveling this week, and I'm here with Ace Watata Suparp and Stephen Gaines, and we're talking real estate and everything that has to do with real estate. And if you have a question for us, we have a few minutes left in the show. Boy, time flies, huh? 866-970-9622 is the call is the toll-free number um what architectural style is the most popular in america this was an interesting article that we came across um anybody have a guess as to what architectural style is the most common in america Hmm. ace what do you think oh no i'm not really uh, you're not big in architectural styles all right well it turns out it's the victorian no, that's the least popular, actually. That's the, that's least, the popular. least popular. Yeah, the most popular is the ranch. I didn't know the ranch was an architectural ranch. style. <laughs> I guess it I grew just up means in one that. floor. I well, I, right. I grew up in what they called a raised ranch was this really great idea of having a set of stairs that you had to walk up to get in the front door, and then you arrive at a landing, forcing you to either walk up again or walk down. Nothing at that level except the landing. That's called the raised ranch, and I always thought, even from the time I was a kid, that was a stupid idea because you were forced to go upstairs and then either downstairs or upstairs again. But the ranch is the most popular style in America. Is a ranch, it's always one floor, Stephen, is that it? I think that's why it's called a ranch. I I wonder why it's actually called a ranch, what that has to do with the ranch or the west. But it was one floor. And then when my grandparents bought a home in Freeport, this is in the 50s or something, the big style then was called the split level. Do they still make split levels? I'll bet you that was a similar concept to this, what I was describing as what they call the raised ranch. But the split level, was that another one where you had to walk up or down when you entered the house? As I remember it, uh, well, yeah, one side of the house was up five steps, and the other side, the the kitchen and the living room were on one level, and then the bedroom was on another. Oh, and then there was down four steps, and you went to the den. I guess it was all Mm -hmm. different levels. Who knows? Yeah, they like levels. I remember the Brady Bunch house um, when we were growing up. There was a lot of stairs there. You had to go up and down. You go into the living room. You had to go down. and. Yeah, you're right. There there were different levels. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and how many was bathrooms big... were in that house with six kids? Which house was it? The Brady house. The Brady oh, house. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> two two bathrooms. The six kids shared one bathroom. So, and that was an architect that designed that house. But in any event, that's a whole other story. Jerry, how do you know that? Yeah, because I watched a lot of TV as a kid. I obviously wow. was not watching football or soccer on TV. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're wondering where the most unmarried co-borrowers live, those who are shacked up uh, in sin, uh, that would be Miami, uh, a new study analyzing U.S. <laughs> residential property loan originations. That's a fascinating study. In the first quarter shows that unmarried co-borrowers counted for 40% of single-family homes in Miami more than any other city. Why do you suppose that is? Are people in Miami, they just don't want to get married? Or it's a loose city, boy. Or, huh? It's a loose city down there, I'll tell you. City. It's, you know, it's, it's Vegas. Yeah, with... the people there. Yeah, with the their idea of a long-term relationship is a second date. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, exactly. it's a single city there. 
yeah. <laughs> so if you if you want to meet a single, I suppose Miami's the place to go. Everyone is beautiful in Miami. Did you notice that? Yeah, you know, I did. Yeah. Young, the oh. average age in Miami people don't believe this, but I saw it a couple of years ago. It was only like thirty-two or thirty-four in mm. Miami Beach. The old people all moved, you know, Less north, further north, and it's a very very young city. Everybody's in shape. They yeah. don't like fat people. And oh. in fact, I was turned away from a restaurant. I was there about five, six weekends ago. Stop it. I went to a restaurant where we had reservations, and they said there was no table. And then my friends and I talked it over, and they said, we're too old. Look around at everybody. You know, everybody yeah. here is in their 20s. They, they found a table fat. for you in the kitchen, probably. Yeah. Yeah, they offered us a stool. <laughs> <laughs> they did. A little stool at a table. We said, we don't want to eat dinner in a stool. I made these reservations yeah. three weeks ago, but we oh. left. That's a sad story, Steve. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, What's the the average age in the Hamptons, by the way? If the average age is 32 in Miami, what is it in the Hamptons? You know, that's an interesting question because, you know, there are a lot of baby boomers that have houses uh, out here in the Hamptons, and now the millennials are coming in. So I would imagine that it's relatively young. I would imagine that it's in the 40s or something, people in their Mm -hmm. 40s or 50s, you know, probably the average age. Interesting. Um, did you know that if in New York a developer wants to build next to you, sometimes they have to pay you? I wish I knew this when they were putting up a, a, a skyscraper next to my last apartment. I would have, I would have shaken them down a little bit. But apparently, yeah. uh, in New York City, there's a set of rules in the building code that requires firms to safeguard the properties of neighbors during construction and renovation, and sometimes they have to pay for that right. Never even occurred to me to go knock on the door of the developer next door when they were building and try to get some money out of them. I wonder if it's too late. Um, did you know this, that they, they have to pay neighbors sometimes? And I've heard this about movie shoots, that if you go out and they're doing a movie shoot in New York and tell them that they're disturbing you, that the, I don't know what they're called, the, you know, the production manager or whatever, has always got cash and, and they'll just give you money to go away. Have you heard this rumor? Maybe it's an urban myth. Ace, but I didn't know that. that. That's no, actually common, Jerry. It's common. It is? It, have you ever done it? Have you yeah. ever gotten any money? Well, um, a lot of times if they're shooting on your block and you're a restaurant, um, they'll actually give you money um, for the for your inconvenience Lost because you're business. losing sales, you know? Huh. So. But this thing yeah. about building next door is is they need access. A lot of builders need access to the property next door. So if you're living in a co-op building, they need access to that co-op building to you know for whatever reasons. And also they put up scaffolding and it gets in your way and there's a lot of noise and stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, they they pay off the building next door and each one of the occupants gets a piece of this. It started back in 1968 with uh, Nelson Rockefeller. Rocky. So, yeah. Mhm. I think I, I think That's it's smart. Right. It avoids a lot of uh discrepancies, you know, neighbors taking the developers to court because of a lot of noise, you know, sometimes they'll call and they'll say that they don't have the appropriate permits, you know, you know like a a begrudged neighbor. So I, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's good that they're being proactive. Yeah. So, but, I had, but yeah, I, you're that right. Building... If we knew about it, we could have sh- shut down some developers, you know? Really, really. And they did make a lot of noise. I have to say, I, I when they were building the skyscraper next to my apartment, uh, my last apartment, you know, and I'm sure that there are rules of what time they can start. I think on the weekends, the rules are, uh, you know, they, they can't start as early as they used to, but they would start jackhammering at 7 a.m. 
in the morning. Now I'm usually awake at 7 a.m., but I'm, you know, in a peaceful moment having a cup of coffee, trying to get ready for the day of real estate. And all of a sudden the jackhammer would start as though it was an alarm clock at 7 a.m. going off. Never occurred to me to go next door and get money. I did call the city 311. That was helpful. They did they did nothing. They asked me lots of questions, and then they did nothing. So I, I, I enjoyed that. It was a great waste of time. Um, I, you know, I'd love to, wouldn't you love to know to go behind the scenes at the city's 311 complaint service and see what happens after you give these complaints with all this detail? You know, they ask you all kinds of questions as though that is going to make you feel secure that they're going to do something. There's probably a great big shredding machine behind each telephone operator and they fill out the complaint and they stamp it and then they put it in the shredding machine and they go on to the next call. Do you suppose that one is what happens? <laughs> Exactly. Are they doing a poll? This way they can say, you know, 30% of the complaints were about noise. Yeah, you know, that, we did nothing. But what are they, they going to do? Noise. Yeah. They probably um, get tens of thousands of calls a day. Can you imagine? And talk about talk about a tough job, sitting there listening to people all day complain. That's it's kind of job. like our Everyone's job. Everyone's complaining. <laughs> it's yeah, like our job, right? right. You're right. No one ever calls to say, I just wanted to call you, Jerry, and say everything's fine with the transaction. I just wanted to say <laughs> hi. Um, anyway, Zillow, who is kind of taking over everything having to do with real estate, now has announced that they're going to start to buy, renovate, and flip homes in Las Vegas and Phoenix within the next 90 days. Be careful, Zillow. It's not as easy as you may think. Uh, the real estate listing company, Zillow, who... I, you know, I refer to them as kind of the know-it-all of real estate. You know, they're, they're, they're a newcomer to this whole game, and we've been doing it forever. And they come out with all of these statistics, you know, because they have access to all this data, you know, that says if you, you know, paint your second bedroom red, then you'll sell your apartment in less time as long as you put it on the market on a Tuesday in April or something like that. <laughs> That's but right. In any event, they're, get, they're getting into the business of buying and flipping houses, uh, in, in these areas, they said Thursday that they'll purchase homes from consumers in Vegas and Phoenix, renovate them, wonder who's going to do that, and they ought to talk to Dottie about renovation before they start, and aim to flip them within 90 days. The company initially plans to hold 300 to 1,000 homes by the end of the year, which amounts to about 75 to $250 million. Uh, Zillow executives said they aren't looking to get rid of real estate agents who generate revenue for its listing businesses by purchasing ads and customer leads. Instead, they have handpicked agents to work on transactions in its Zillow Instant Offers business. Wow. Unbelievable, right? What well, I mean, what's next for these guys? They seem to be getting into every aspect of real estate, but this seems a little on the risky side to me. What do you guys think? Well, you know, they've got money to burn. It's, yeah, it's... it's it's definitely, um, you know, what you consider a disruptor, right? So everyone's talking about technology, how, you know, Zillow's doing it, this new company from London's doing it, Purple Bricks. But I think ultimately, people still need real estate agents, right? So no matter how much technology is changing the way we do business, I think, you know, with real estate, with it being an emotional um, process, one of the biggest investments um, in your life, um, you need a realtor to sort of tell you things that you can't find out. Um, online, right? Because, you know, square footage, price per square footage, it's great. But, you know, do we know what the past um, owner did to the apartment or, you know, so. You are you know, so right, Ace. People, people that don't use a real estate agent or would let Zillow handle the entire transaction are just fools. 
You must yeah. have somebody in your corner, an expert, like a real estate Definitely. agent. It's important. Or Jerry Feeney in your well, corner. <laughs> or that, right. So this has been a fun two hours. Time flies when you're having fun. And uh, this is Ion Real Estate. And uh, listen in next week. And Dottie will be back from London, hopefully, um, safely after uh, celebrating Queen Elizabeth's birthday today. Um, but this is your favorite talk show on AM 970 Real Estate Talk Radio. Have a good week. I had a great time. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks. Thanks, Jerry. You're a great host. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.